Bay Village, Ohio, 1989. On a fall day in late October, a 10-year-old girl would visit the Bay Village Shopping Center after school with plans to pick out a present for her mother. Little did she know, though, that she had been tricked into a ruse with much darker intentions. A ruse that would kick off one of the biggest murder cases in Ohio history. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 6, The Abduction and Murder of Amy Mihaljevic. Hello and welcome back to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a bi-weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, and all other major podcast outlets. I also want to note that I have been uploading the episodes onto YouTube as well. Starting with episode 4, the uploads contain relevant photos pertaining to the case. I try to have these up within the week after uploading onto the podcast networks, but I don't have a designated day quite yet. I also post said photos to social media. You can find me on YouTube at Midwest Mystery Files. Now, on to today's case. Amy Renee Mahalovic was born in Little Rock, Arkansas on December 11, 1978 to Mark Mahalovic and Margaret McNulty Mahalovic. Mark's job would eventually move him, Margaret, Amy, and Amy's older brother Jason to Mississippi for a while before he would be transferred to Ohio in 1984. The Mahalovic family would purchase a home in Bay Village, Ohio, a small suburb located on the south shore of Lake Erie and just to the west of Cleveland. In October 1989, 10-year-old Amy was attending Bay Middle School as a 5th grader. At the end of every school day, she would leave school, walk home, and then call her mother at work to let her know she had made it home safely. Friday, October 27th, to Margaret, was seemingly no different as she did receive her daily call from Amy. It wasn't until Margaret and Mark returned home that night that she soon came to the realization that Amy had never been home at all. The two parents and a friend quickly headed to Bay Middle School as well as the Lake Erie Shore area to search for their missing daughter. Upon reporting Amy missing, law enforcement wasted little time jumping into action, with the FBI coming in to assist the very next morning. Fear and confusion of what happened to Amy only intensified quickly. It wasn't long after the search began that classmates of Amy's spoke with law enforcement, and a grim picture of what had happened to her was beginning to develop. Two 10-year-old girls would report seeing Amy at Bay Square Shopping Center, about 0.3 miles from the middle school, talking to a man. The girls reported that the man was wearing a beige windbreaker with plaid lining, front press khakis, and a button-up shirt. His hair was thick and bushy above the eyes. The man was observed speaking to Amy before putting his arm around her shoulder and leading her away, seemingly without an issue. A man working in a barber shop near where Amy was spotted told News 5 Cleveland that there was no sound of protest or a struggle outside, and if there had been, he would have heard it. This was the last time Amy would be seen alive. Along with the two classmates seeing Amy with the man, two more girls would come forward to tell authorities the troubling and downright disturbing reason that Amy had gone to the shopping center and not home after school. The two girls told authorities that Amy was going to the shopping center to meet an unknown individual in order to pick out a present for her mom. They stated that Amy had told them the days earlier Amy had come home and even before she had a chance to call her mother to tell her she had arrived, the phone rang. On the other end of the line was a man who claimed to work with Amy's mother, Margaret, at Trading Times Magazine. 
Margaret had just received a promotion, and the man told Amy he wanted to take her shopping so that they could pick out a congratulatory present to surprise Margaret with. The man informed Amy that this little trip would need to be kept a secret, and they would meet after school and go pick out the present. This is believed to be the man Amy was seen speaking with at the Bay Square Shopping Center. And he most likely took Amy to a phone upon meeting with him and convinced her to call Margaret and inform her that she had arrived home safely, helping him to deter Margaret and Mark from realizing that Amy was missing until it was too late. The new revelation sent authorities and the community into high gear. Not only was this a missing persons case, it was now clearly an abduction, and there was little time to waste. A composite sketch was made of the man and deposited throughout the city. It lined store windows along with a missing persons flyer for Amy. The sketch and flyer were also sent out with every single box from a local pizza hut. Within days, there were tens of thousands of flyers distributed throughout Cleveland, Ohio, and the surrounding states. 24 Bay Village police officers and between 30 to 50 FBI agents were continuously working on the case, doing everything they could to piece together what had happened to Amy. Within the first three days, over 100 tips were called in. The Cuyahoga Regional Informational Service, a service of law enforcement computers linked together from across Cuyahoga County and the country, was used to help gather and organize tips and information. The technology was quickly strained by the amounts of information processed through it. The system was designed to handle about 1,000 inquiries per case, and it was being pushed far past that limit. It seemed everybody in northern Ohio was doing everything they could to help bring Amy home. Margaret would take to the airwaves, pleading with the man who took her daughter to at the very least allow Amy to make a phone call. In an interview with News 5 Cleveland, she would speak directly to her daughter, saying, You got my work number. You got my home number. Just call, sweetie. Please call. Authorities theorized almost right away that this man must have known Amy, or at the very least Margaret. Margaret would go on to describe Amy as smart and reliable, and whoever kidnapped her had taken advantage of her under the guise of making her mother happy. The man also knew when he called Amy's home after school, she'd be alone, and that Margaret had just received a promotion. He was also aware of the fact that Amy needed to call her mom to tell her she was home from school. Authorities would interview Margaret's co-workers and other acquaintances, but were unable to find any leads or suspects among them. Soon, October would turn to November and then to December. Amy's 11th birthday and the start of a new year would come and go with no sign of her. During that time, investigators would continue to receive tips and follow up on potential leads. However, all avenues would seem to lead nowhere. Then, in February, the worst fears of the Mahalovic family, investigators, and the Bay Village community would be realized. On February 8, 1990, just over 50 miles south of Bay Village, a jogger would be going up Township Road 1181 in Ashland County, Ohio, when they would come across the decomposing body of Amy Mahalovic. Amy had been stabbed several times and left to decompose in a field. She was noted as wearing the same clothes she had on the day she was abducted, and her autopsy revealed food from her school lunch in her stomach indicating that she was most likely murdered and left in the field not long after her disappearance on October 27th. At the time, little was revealed about any physical evidence found at the scene, other than fibers belonging to a General Motors car made between 1976 and 1978 were found on Amy's body. The fibers were tan in color and believed to have come from the interior of Amy's killer's car. It was also noted that while Amy was wearing the clothes she was last seen in, her feet were bare. She was missing her black, metal-studded boots, 
Also missing was a pair of horsehead earrings she had been wearing, and a notebook with a Buick logo that said, Best in Class. It has been theorized that these items may have been taken by the killer as souvenirs. It was also noted that while she was clothed, her underwear was on backwards, meaning she had most likely been undressed and redressed. Within the first day of finding Amy, hundreds of tips began to flow in with potential leads as to who Amy's murderer was. It was at this juncture that Bay Village Police set up a workstation and began to coordinate with the Ashland County Sheriff's Department. Renewed emphasis was put on the composite sketch of the man last seen with Amy, with investigators urging the public to keep an eye out for anyone who may match the sketch. It was also emphasized to keep an eye out for other potential individuals who may look different from the drawing, with investigators stating the man in the sketch may have undergone drastic changes in his appearance since its release. They also noted the individual may have altered their daily habits, such as consumption of alcohol, drugs, or finding religion. Lieutenant Richard Wilson would tell News 5 Cleveland, quote, If you know of someone who has had behavioral changes recently since the time of the abduction, if there has been a change in work habits or unexplained absences from work or their residence, by all means call us and let us have that information. Police would continue to follow up leads and tips and question viable suspects, but they could never find the breakthrough in the case that they needed. About a year after Amy was found, a witness would come forward and state that approximately 13 hours before Amy's body was discovered, they spotted a man near the area where she would be located. The witness told police a man in his mid-20s to 30s was standing outside a dark blue hatchback car with the hatch open. A new composite sketch would be released of the man seen on the side of the road, who did look drastically different than the man seen with Amy at the shopping center. Shortly after this announcement, a man would approach a Salvation Army bell ringer and confess to having killed Amy. The man would then walk into a grocery store, come back out, and say it again before driving off in a dark brown Chevy pickup truck with a bed cap and running boards. The incident would be reported to police, but the man's description did not match the new or original composite sketch. Throughout the 1990s, investigators would continue to pursue tips, leads, and suspects, and the case would even be featured on a segment during America's Most Wanted. Unfortunately, they were still unable to find their murderer, although some men other than the man on the street tried to take the credit. News 5 Cleveland would note that dozens of men would try to take credit, including an individual who burst into a Bay Village church and began pushing people while screaming he had murdered Amy. The confessions would only complicate matters and lead to dead ends, though, as law enforcement would dismiss them all as unreliable. The decade would end with still no answers in Amy's murder, and unfortunately, Margaret would pass away in 2001 after a battle with lupus, never finding answers as to who took her daughter from her. Before her passing, she had helped to establish the Community Fund for Assisting Missing Youth, an Ohio nonprofit focused on protecting children from suffering the same fate as Amy's. A new revelation would be revealed in 2006. As it turned out, Amy was not the only girl who had received a phone call like the one she did. At least three other girls had received a call from a man claiming to work with their mother and that he wanted to take them to pick out a gift for her. These attempts would keep failing, however. None of the girls would bite, until he found success with Amy. These girls all attended school in North Olmstead, just to the south of Bay Village, and they were all around 10 to 11 years old. Like me when I first read this, you were most likely wondering what the connection was here. How could three girls from North Olmstead and Amy from Bay Village have a connection? 
Well, in 2006, James Runner, a journalist who has done extensive work on Amy's case, including several articles and a book, was sought out by the three girls. They told Runner that on the week of St. Patrick's Day in 2005, a retired FBI agent who worked on Amy's case contacted each of them. The detective asked each of them if they remembered visiting the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center in Bay Village. The center had been one of Amy's favorite places. It also turned out that along with Amy, all three had attended the Nature Center in the weeks before Amy's abduction and murder. The detective asked them if they remembered writing their names and home numbers in a logbook by the front doors. It would seem that it was standard practice for visitors to log their name and home phone numbers in the logbook. With this information and several inquiries into the Nature Center and law enforcement, Renner was able to uncover one of investigators' prime suspects into the Amy's murder. Now, I want to note that while Renner has named the suspect in an article he wrote in 2008, he himself refrained from naming the suspect while on the Jetson and Holes, the Murder Squad podcast in 2020, and because law enforcement has also never named him publicly, I will refrain from naming him also. I just think the details that Renner uncovered are worth noting about this man. In the fall of 1989, the man had begun teaching science at Nord Middle School in Amherst, Ohio, just 20 miles to the southwest of Bay Village. A former student of the man would tell Renner that he remembered the man always telling students about the nature center he would volunteer at, and the former student was positive that it was the Lake Erie Nature Center. Renner also found out the man had grown up in a house not far from where Amy had been found on Township Road 1181. Detectives had long theorized that the perpetrator most likely was familiar with the area, as it was fairly remote and most likely wasn't a place picked on a whim. Renner would also dig into the man's teaching history. The man had worked at another school in Ohio for several years prior to Nord Middle School. He had come to the middle school with glowing recommendations and was noted as having basically a small nature center in his classrooms, complete with ferrets, prairie dogs, and snakes. He would let students volunteer after class to help clean the cages so he could better get to know them. Several students would go on to tell Renner, however, that the man could also be extremely creepy, as he would often whisper in girls' ears or put his hand on their shoulders too much. He could also be heard telling sexual jokes to the boys and telling them about a blow-up doll that he owned. One student noted that she had called police in 1989 when she noticed that the composite sketch released at the time looked eerily like her teacher. The man was also noted by students as being caught in his vehicle with students several times, although this was nowhere in his personal file that Renner had obtained. The nature of these incidents were never exactly specified. It should be noted that the man drove a gold-colored Pontiac Grand Prix, a GM car that Fibers found with Amy could potentially be from. Renner would track the car down, but when visiting the junkyard it had last been sold to, he learned it had already been scrapped. In the early 2000s, the man would abruptly resign from Nord Middle School and teaching altogether. Renner noted in the Jensen Holes podcast that this was shortly before a new policy was being implemented in Ohio, where all public school teachers would be required to be fingerprinted. Renner would eventually discover that the man had moved to Key West, Florida, and it was at this junction that Renner decided to find the man and speak to him himself. After some searching, Renner would indeed find the man and speak with him. The man would admit that he knew he was a top suspect in the case, but he had already answered all of the FBI's questions and he was innocent. Renner noted in the Jensen and Holmes podcast that a cop had already informed him that the man denied ever being at the Nature Center, so Renner decided to try a bluff. 
He asked the man what he would say if Renner told him that the student had showed him a picture of the man and the student at the nature center. The man would tell Renner, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if I was in a picture at the Lake Erie Nature Center. Despite the statement, though, the man would maintain that he had zero memory of ever actually being there. The man has yet to be charged or publicly named as a suspect by law enforcement. Not much movement would be made in the case until 2016, when new information about evidence was made available to the public. Law enforcement would reveal that when Amy's body was found, a homemade curtain and blanket were found not too far from the site of where her body was recovered. At the time of their discovery, investigators were unable to definitively connect the blanket or the curtain to Amy's murder. However, they had recently been able to confirm that canine hairs located on the items match the hairs from the Mihaljevic family dog owned in 1989. Investigators believe that the items most likely came from the location where Amy had been taken and murdered. The blanket is a beige fabric, and the curtain is made out of an avocado green cotton quilt. It's noted as being hand-sewn with bindings at the top and the bottom. At a press conference announcing the evidence, retired FBI detective Phil Torsney would state, quote, We are hoping somebody recognizes it. If somebody can call us saying, My mom made this curtain. My grandma made this curtain. It was hanging in my brother's room. Whatever it is, we can solve this case. Torsney, the FBI agent known for tracking down notorious gangster Whitey Bulger, was involved in the early years of Amy's case, and after retiring, he came to Bay Village to work the case full-time for the Bay Village Police Department. The last major news in the case came this year. In February 2021, News 5 Cleveland would uncover court documents that revealed a woman had come forward in January of 2019 to name her ex-boyfriend as a suspect in Amy's murder. In a sworn affidavit, the woman told police that at the time of Amy's disappearance, the man and his former girlfriend lived less than a mile and a half from the Bay Village Shopping Center. The man also worked in Bay Village and had a niece who was in Amy's grade at Bay Middle School. The woman would go on to say that the man did not come home on the night of Amy's abduction, which was largely out of character for him. He did, however, call her that night around 10 p.m. to ask if the woman had heard about the disappearance. She would state that she believed that they did travel to Ashland County, where Amy was found, on more than one occasion. The affidavit went on to state that the man in question's appearance in 1989 was similar to one of the composite sketches, and the two witnesses from the shopping center picked the man's picture out of the lineup as the man they saw speaking with Amy. Police noted in the affidavit that the man drove a gold-colored Oldsmobile in 1989 and 1990 with a tan interior, similar to what the fibers found with Amy may have matched. In a report from 1989, an FBI agent noted that a gold Oldsmobile was spotted near the site on the day Amy was found. In November of 2019, the man would speak to Bay Village Police over two days. Detectives noted him as making very suspicious comments. According to the court records, the man stated that 1989 and 90 were dark years in his life, and that he may or may not have met Amy's mother, Margaret, in a bar. When asked if he called the Mahalovic home and spoke to Amy, he replied, quote, I could have, and that, quote, it could have been a wrong number. When asked if Amy was in his car, the man said, quote, I don't believe so. But when they asked again if it was possible, they said the man had stated, quote, okay, but I don't know what the situation would have been. 
The man also stated it was possible that his DNA could be on a curtain found near Amy's body, but said, quote, I did not put it there, and that his DNA would only be on Amy's body if, quote, somebody had planted it on her. Investigators said the man agreed to a DNA swab and a polygraph test. Police said the results of the polygraph test were deception indicated. It was also noted that the man did not show up the next day as planned to sign paperwork, allowing police to search a storage unit. According to court records, police obtained a warrant, searched the storage unit, and officers seized some evidence. What was seized was not noted. It was also not noted if the DNA from the man was tested. It had been revealed in 2019 that authorities did indeed have mitochondrial DNA that could potentially belong to the murderer. However, they have been sparse with testing it as there isn't much left and one more test could destroy it for good. For 31 years now, the mystery of who killed Amy Maholovic has haunted investigators, family, and the city of Bay Village. Investigators have conducted over thousands of hours of interviews and spoken to thousands of people, finding suspects, but never anyone they could 100% pin down as the murderer. Fortunately, at this point, we're only left with theories. The driving force behind every theory in Amy's case is the phone call she received, luring her to her murderer. No matter how you look at it, it's hard to ignore the fact that all the girls who were contacted visited the Lake Erie Nature Center. I'd be curious to know if the logbook was kept behind the counter, or if it was out where anyone could read it. I don't find it hard to believe that the book could be signed, then someone who was standing close by reads who just signed it, and then follows them around the center, picking up any information they could use in a phone call, and then following the individual's home and learning the routine, and when would be the best time for them to make the phone call. Amy was a regular visitor to the center. It certainly seems possible that our murderer could have overheard the family talking about Margaret's promotion, did his stalking and research, and then struck. This is obviously all speculation on my part, but I feel like it would be a reasonable route to take. At least one suspect has been potentially connected to the Nature Center. The man James Renner tracked down was noted by his students as having been a volunteer there, or at least a normal visitor. The man's statement, I wouldn't be surprised if I was there, I just don't remember, is a little hard to look at. He may have been deflecting, but he also may remember and wasn't willing to admit it. He was also familiar with the area where Amy was found, having grown up there, and he did drive a vehicle which could have had matching fibers to the ones found on Amy. At the end of the day, though, those facts are all highly circumstantial, and not enough to really prove anything. It's clear investigators had this man in their sights for a while, but they could never find anything that stuck. Without knowing more on the man, and what investigators might know that we don't, it's impossible to come to a 100% solid conclusion. We then have our suspect from 2019. This guy is hard to analyze. We're mostly going off the statements from an ex-girlfriend, as well as confusing and contradicting statements from the man in question. Looking at the facts that do match up, such as his proximity to the shopping center, his vehicle, and the fact that he may have met Margaret in a bar, we're once again stuck with mostly circumstantial evidence, and nothing concrete. Some may note his polygraph results, however I, like many people in this field, don't put much stock in polygraphs. They're notoriously unreliable, and are also inadmissible in court, so I won't be putting much stock in his. They did, however 
sees unknown evidence out of his storage locker, so I will continue to watch this closely as we may not have heard the last of him. Lastly, I know some people wonder if it wasn't a co-worker of Margaret's, due to them knowing about her promotion. While this is possible, I do find it unlikely. Everyone was thoroughly checked out, and it still doesn't add up with the other girls receiving phone calls. At the end of the day, I truly think the Nature Center is the answer, and whoever might have visited there regularly, whether it be our teacher from the middle school or somebody else. It's been 31 years since Amy was taken and murdered. 31 years since a family was ripped apart, and 31 years that a killer is walking free. Free from justice from the atrocity that he committed. 31 years, however, is not too long to find a murderer and catch him. I'm sure there's not too many people in northern Ohio who aren't familiar with this case. However, it's a big world out there, and we can continue to share Amy's story and get it out there. You never know. Some man in California could recognize the homemade curtain he saw the one time he visited his uncle's house in Ohio in 1989. I know that seems a little far-fetched, but stranger breakthroughs and cases have happened. If you're looking for more information on the abduction and murder of Amy Mihaljevic, there is a slew of articles, podcasts, both single episodes and deep dives, as well as plenty of documentaries. News 5 Cleveland has done extensive coverage in the modern times, and there is also James Renner's book, Amy, My Search for Her Killer, Secrets and Suspects in the Unsolved Murder of Amy Mihaljevic, as well as various articles he has written on the case. If you want to let me know what you think happened, or have questions, comments, or case suggestions, or just want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, or search Midwest Mystery Files on Facebook. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and like what you hear, I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate and review as this helps the podcast appear on searches as well as gives more exposure to these cases. Thank you to all of those who have done so already. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care, and I'll see you all in two weeks.